Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We'll begin in verse 17 and go all the way through verse 24. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 17, going through verse 24, the Gimel section of Psalm 119. This is the word of God. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, Your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray once more. Lord, once again, we ask that you would please be with us. We ask in the words of this psalm that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Do this, we pray, for the glory of Christ, and it's in his name we ask. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For a number of years, when my children were younger, my wife and I lived near Washington, D.C., and one of the great benefits, we talk about this even now, one of the great benefits of living near Washington, D.C. was the access that we had at almost any time to some world-class museums. And, And the best thing about these museums, of course, and this set it apart from other cities where we've lived, is that you could go in them and they were free. And so we could go in even with young children and just spend an hour or two. You didn't need to feel like you didn't feel like you needed to get your money's worth and spend the whole day. And there were a couple of places in these various museums that we would return to over and over again. One of them was a room that was dominated by one particular painting. It's actually a series of four paintings, but it's one work by an artist named Thomas Cole. It's painted in the 1840s, and it was entitled The Voyage of Life. And the way in which these sequence of paintings played out was in the first one, you saw a man on a boat, and he's emerging from the woods in a very narrow stream, and there's a kind of sun rising off in the distance. And this is meant to represent the early stages of a man's life as he's just embarking out into the world, perhaps even the time of childhood. In the next painting in the series, you see this man in a slightly broader river, and there's a, the, the sun is overhead, clearly, clearly seen, and there's this vision in front of the man of this city or this palace on the horizon. He's heading towards it wide-eyed, excited about what lies ahead. And then the third painting, which is undoubtedly the most famous in the series, portrays a man in the throes of life, in the middle of life. And the portrait's very different. It's dark and cloudy. In the first two, there was an angel hovering over the man in the boat. And in this third one, the angel is gone and the city on the horizon is gone. In fact, what you see is a very wide river with all sorts of rocks in the way and waves crashing. The boat's sort of tipping over and you can see the man fighting just just to keep on course. And then in the last one, he's proceeding into an open ocean 
with a sun in the distance. But it's that third painting that captures most people's attention. It certainly captured our attention when we saw it because what it shows in a very vivid way is the difficulty oftentimes of life, the, the complexity of life. You feel like you're, you're hanging on by your fingernails sometimes. You feel like you're, you're just trying to stay on course and stay afloat. And it's vividly portrayed in this third painting. And there's something of that third painting that, that, that middle of life, which actually ends up being the bulk of life, that is portrayed in these verses, Psalm 119, 17 through 24. There's a progression that we see in Psalm 119 leading up to this section. In the first section, the Aleph section, you see this overarching portrait of the blessed life. And the blessed life, of course, is the life of one whose way is blameless, one who keeps the testimonies of the Lord. And there are all sorts of benefits that attend to that kind of keeping of God's law. And the second section, the Baith section, talks about a young man and asks this provocative question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And again, this almost under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit points us in the direction of God's word. But, but here in this third section, it seems to deal with all of life and particularly life in its most difficult moments. Psalm 119.17 really lays out the theme and the key idea of the section. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. One commentator puts it this way. This third section seems to be particularly autobiographical. The writer had known deprivation and fear for his life. The dryness of soul, which Cooper wrote, when, he, when the word itself seems to lose its savor under the stress of life. He had known loneliness and rejection and the agony of seeming abandonment. John Calvin says much the same thing about this third section, that it's about all of life. And Calvin said, we know by nature, how in some measure we're supposed to deal with the complexities of life. But, but this God has placed before us uh, by the Holy Spirit that, that puts us in the mindset that we're supposed to have in order to live in this world. See, this is what the writer deals with in this section. He wants to live and keep the word of God. Now, I want to divide our study up really into two parts. First, I want to ask the question, how is it that the psalmist describes his life? How is it that he describes this life which he intends to live by keeping the word of God? I want to look at a few of the ways in which he, he describes it. First of all, if you look at verse 19, you see this. He describes himself as a sojourner on the earth. And this idea of being a sojourner really implies two things. First of all, it implies that a, a kind of alienation, if you're a sojourner, you're not home. You're, you're, you're somewhere else. You're, you're, you're not where you're ultimately supposed to be or where you ultimately belong. So there is this sense, of course, of alienation and maybe even abandonment. And it's a very evocative term, isn't it? Isn't this often how we feel in the world or in certain parts of our life. We feel as if we, we don't quite fit. We don't 
quite belong. We're not actually where we ought to be. And the writer says that that's exactly what he is. Now, the striking thing about this term, of course, if you know the Bible, is you know that the Bible often uses this term to, to describe God's people. In fact, when God calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, you're going to be a sojourner and, and your children are going to be sojourners on the earth. It's actually the basis for the laws of the sojourner that God gives to Israel. He says, you need to take care of these sojourners in certain ways, according to my laws. And you need to do that because you yourselves know what it is to be sojourners. In a sense, that's what you are. It's striking that even David, when he's about to die and the people are living in the land, living in the city of Jerusalem, what does he say? as he looks at himself and looks at the people, as recorded for us in First Chronicles 29, we, we are strangers and sojourners, as all our fathers were. And the reason he says that's true is he says our days on earth are, are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. There's a sense in which, even implanted in the land, in the city of Jerusalem, about to hand over the kingdom to his son Solomon, David recognizes that all of us, in some way, are just sojourners, just strangers in the land. This is repeated in the Psalms as well. In Psalm 39, here's how the psalmist puts it. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. You know that that very same word from the Septuagint of this is the word that Peter uses in the New Testament to describe Christians. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. When the psalmist looks at his life, one of the key features of his life, one of the key labels he can use to describe himself is just that. I'm a I'm a sojourner. I'm a sojourner as my fathers were. I'm a sojourner in this this world. There's a wonderful wonderful prayer in that collection, the Valley of Vision, that describes the the kind of feeling of being a sojourner, of, of being made, not for this world, but ultimately for enjoyment of God in another world. I live here This is from the Valley of Vision, as a fish in a vessel of water, only enough to keep me alive. But in heaven, he says, I shall swim in the ocean. Here I have a little air in me to keep me breathing. But there I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness, a warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder I shall live in light and warmth forever. My natural desires are corrupt and misguided, this prayer says, and it is thy mercy to destroy them. My spiritual longings are of thy planting, and thou wilt water and increase them. Quicken my hunger and thirst after the realm above. That's the attitude that the psalmist has when he looks at life. He knows that he's a sojourner, a stranger. He's ultimately only going to find his true rest and satisfaction in heaven with God alone. You know, it's striking. The only time that we see in scripture, this particular word, or at least see in the New Testament, this particular Greek word used uh, not to describe our current situation, but to describe our 
past situation is Paul's use of it in Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, what Paul says is this, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is a sense in which, apart from God's people, and apart from our enjoyment of God in heaven for eternity, we are sojourners on the earth. What else does he say to describe life as it is now? He's a sojourner, he says. Look at verse 22. He describes his situation as one of scorn and contempt. That's why he prays that God will remove the scorn and contempt from him. Take away, he says in verse 22, from me, scorn and contempt. What does this mean? What do these terms imply about life or about the the psalmist's life? Well, first we can deal with this term scorn, translated as scorn. It can refer to reviling or, or taunting against someone when someone is being scorned by another. It means they're being insulted, they're being taunted. There's this ongoing kind of reviling taking place. It can also refer, of course, and is used many times this way in the scriptures, to the, the kind of shame that someone feels. It can be used of even shameful things, sinful things that are done. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, this is often how it's employed. And the psalmist says, my state right now, as I stand here and come before the Lord in prayer, is one of a stranger, a sojourner. And it's one where I am consumed in some measure with scorn. Now, he also mentions the word contempt. And this, of course, refers to being beneath consideration or, or worthless. It's the idea that lies behind our description sometimes of someone being canceled. In other words, they no longer matter. We no longer listen to them. They, they, have, they have no say in life. Every word out of their mouth, anything they do or say is to be disregarded completely. It's of no value. We're kind of writing them out of human society. And this is the kind of thing that the writer is experiencing at this time. He's experiencing scorn from those around him, and he's experiencing even their very contempt. You know, I was speaking with someone yesterday on the phone who just a friend of mine, long-time friend of mine, who, who just got a new job, and one of the things that he said about his new position that he was so excited about was he said, you know, it's it's just great to have a situation where someone thinks I can actually do something. I mean, he'd been working for many years in various capacities, but, but he was always hitting up against the fact that, that he, he knew he wasn't really valued. He wasn't really allowed to do things, take on a special responsibility. And now, and now he could. And what a great feeling that was. Well, the psalmist is talking here about scorn and contempt along those same lines. Look at what else he says about his life in verse 23. If all of that wasn't bad enough, if it wasn't bad enough for him to say, I don't belong here, I'm a sojourner. And by the way, I'm a sojourner experiencing scorn, shame, contempt from the world. What does he say in verse 23? Well, there's a very active plot against him. Even though he says, princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. I want you to note something first. Note the rank of those who were against him. 
He doesn't just say that there were anonymous trolls on the internet who didn't like something he stood for. No, he says there's a, there's a, there are princes, there are men with authority, men with actual power over my life. And they are spending their time, not just passively against me. It's not just they're ignoring me or they've canceled me or they don't care for what I'm doing. No, no, they are actively against me. They're plotting behind the scenes actually to do me harm. And by virtue of their position, they have the power to do harm to me. This is a level of persecution that some of our brothers and sisters experience on a regular basis, but most of us haven't experienced. We're upset when someone responds to us in a way that we think is inappropriate, or we know they stand for something that the Bible is against. But this is far more active than that. Even though princes sit plotting against me. I'm reminded of the way Fox's Book of Martyrs describes many Christians during those times of persecution. They were bound to relinquish not only goods and children, but life itself, Fox says, for the glory of Christ. I want you to think about even those who are in this room now. If you haven't experienced scorn and contempt, if you haven't ever been in a situation where you could say, princes sit plotting against me, it's very likely that some of you will be in that position. This is not unusual in the scriptures, actually. We know that the Lord Jesus himself says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If they hated me, they'll hate you, Jesus says. And how could Paul put it any more clearly when he writes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This man isn't really experiencing something extraordinary for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's articulating it with great clarity. He knows exactly where he stands with respect to the world. Now, if that's the description of life, if that's the description of this man's life as he's surveying what it means to be a man in the world, a man who's a believer in God in the midst of the world, what does this man of God need What does he really need in the midst of this life? Well, the short answer, really, if you survey these verses, is that he needs an understanding and a love for the Word of God. And we'll look at that in more detail, but I want you to consider whether you see that as your great need as you face difficulty and persecution in life. You see your great need as being an understanding of God's word, uh, a deeper love for God's word. We're so often drawn to circumstantial changes. What we really need is for other people to like us more. What would really be wonderful is if princes weren't plotting against us, if we didn't have shame and contempt. But what what the writer knows is that what you need is an understanding and a love for God's word. Isn't it Jesus himself who said, man shall not live by bread alone, but what is it that he shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? 
We go back to verse 17, and we see it there in that opening verse. What does it mean to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Well, to live and keep your word. But of course, there are obstacles even to this. And this section of the psalm tells us what some of those obstacles are. This, this one who's writing this knows that we ourselves don't often see that which is in God's word. We may actually have God's word in our possession, and we should thank God for it. But look at what he does in verses 18 and 19. He asks that God, in verse 18, would open his eyes, open my eyes, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. See, what this psalm teaches us, what it presupposes, what the writer knows, is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him because they are spiritually discerned. And So this, this man who is not a natural man, he's a man who's trusting in God, nonetheless says, Lord, I know you're the one responsible for opening my eyes. You're the one I need to turn to, to provide illumination on your word. And so give me that illumination. He goes on to say this in verse 19, hide not your commandments from me. You know, some of the greatest examples that we have in history of men who knew the word of God and lived by the word of God in the midst of persecution and preached the word of God in the midst of persecution all lived out the kind of teaching behind verses 18 and 19. I'm reminded of George Whitfield's example as the, as the Lord is pulling his heart towards ministry, a preaching ministry. Whitfield was already very gifted. He loved the Lord, but he wasn't yet ordained. And he writes this about his study of the Bible as he was being, as he was moving step by step to ordination. I wonder, wonder if this would be something you would say as you move closer and closer to ordination. Here's what Whitfield said. I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light, and power from above. This is what the psalmist is telling us to do. He's praying to the Lord with his Bible open and saying, Lord, open my eyes that I may receive wonderful things from your word. We read later in the Dalmore biography of Whitfield, incidentally, that he would, he would have his, his Bible, his Greek New Testament, each on, in one hand on his knees before the Lord, and he would, he would look at each and pray through these line by line. Hide not your commandments from me. Make your, way, make your word plain and clear. Now, of course, we know that verse 19 is, in one sense, something that God has already done. God already has given us a word, a clear word. Although all things in Scripture are not alike plain to themselves. We, we, in themselves, we know that, that the Bible nonetheless gives the way of salvation with great clarity to us. And but we know that, of course, even from our confession, uh, Westminster Confession 1-7 says that. But, but have you ever considered what 1-8 and 1-9 say as they apply to verse 19? Well, 
In 1.8, it talks about the fact that the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. And then in 1.9, it refers to the fact that we need the rule of faith. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand it properly. In other words, while he's praying to the Lord, while he's on his knees as he studies, the fact of the matter is that we need to know that God often opens our eyes and keeps his commandments from being hidden as we study the Scriptures humbly sitting under teachers and working at what Scripture says. There's a pastoral application here too, I think. The Apostle Paul, as he reflects on what he wants out of his preaching ministry, you remember this from Colossians chapter 4, he asks the Colossian church to pray for him and pray for his preaching. And here's how he asks them to pray. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am prisoned. So I'm in prison. Yes, open a door for your word. But then look at what he says in verse 4. Listen to this. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. We should be praying as students of God's word that God would make his word clear to us. And that's going to involve our study and our reflection and our meditation. We should also be praying that in our ministries, we make God's word clear to others. There's really no room for men who open God's word and you feel like you understand it less when they close the Bible than before they opened it. Uh, People who want to display their own learning and use their own jargon to somehow impress other people. No, Paul says, pray that I'll make it clear. That's how I ought to speak, making God's word plain. One more thing, although it's only implied by the text. I think it's significant. There are, there are many people in our world, world today who don't even have access to the Word of God or to someone who can make it clear to them. We need to be in special prayer for those people on their behalf as an act of love for them. Yes, we pray that God will make it clear to us. We pray that God will make it clear through us. Oh, but there are, by some accounts, 3,000 people who speak a language that has no copy of the scriptures, may even be higher than that. There are many who have no preacher. How can they hear if there's no one there to preach to them? Open my eyes, open their eyes, that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Well, what what do you find when you look to God's word in this way, in the midst of life? Well, you find, according to verse 21, clarity regarding the wicked. Remember, this is a man who knew that he was up against some significant enemies. He knew that he was covered with shame and slander. Look at what he says in verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Well, how did he know this? He knew it from reading the Word of God, from studying the Word of God. See, what happens when you study the Word of God in the midst of life's difficulties as you start to see things that God says about those who oppose him. There's probably no clearer example of this, is there, than Psalm 73. You remember how that goes? You remember the psalmist's thought process in Psalm 73? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning, the psalmist says. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment. You see, this is what happens when you live your life according to God's word. It puts things in perspective because you realize what it is that God will do to those who are opposed to him and to his word. You also see that living according to God's word, according to verse 22, gives him comfort. And I want to say that as comfort here is really ultimately, if we pull the thread of verse 22, comfort in Christ himself. Take away from me scorn and contempt, he says, for I have kept your testimonies. And why do I say it's comfort in Christ himself? Well, because if you look at those terms that he used, very evocative terms about what he was experiencing, scorn and contempt. And yet in the scriptures, they make it clear that God takes these things away through his Messiah. In Isaiah 25, for instance, it says he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach, the scorn of his people, he will take away from all the earth because the Lord has spoken. We see an example of this in Luke 1 at the incarnation. Those who understand what God is doing can say this when they look in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. See, this is what the writer knows as he goes to God, asking him to take away his scorn and contempt as he keeps the word of God. He knows that this is exactly what God promises to do. Well, finally, what else does he gain from all of this? Well, in the midst of life, he gains not only these things, but also verse 24, delight and counsel. You know, as you face a life like the one outlined in these verses, it might be very tempting to talk about that life as being one that's absent, that has delight absent from it. The writer here gives no indication that he has other friends who are helping him. In fact, it looks like he's got enemies on all sides. And yet, because he has the testimonies of God, he has both delight in life and counsel in life. How often do we meet people, even in the context of counseling situations, that say, I just, I just have no delight in life. There's, there's nothing I enjoy about it. It's just become drudgery and hopelessness. In fact, there's a, there's a term that's been coined in the last few years to describe our culture and a phenomenon in our culture, deaths of despair. In fact, in fact they would say deaths of despair now are the leading causes of death among otherwise healthy adult people. Deaths of despair are things like deaths from drug overdose and suicide and alcohol abuse. And deaths of despair are caused by people who ultimately look at life and have no delight in it because of the circumstances of it and because of their own understanding of themselves. And yet this writer is struggling. And yet he says, your testimonies are my delight. And then he says, they're my counselors at the end. Spurgeon has a great section on this idea of the testimonies of God being counselors. Here's what he says. A poor godly man, even when he is deserted of all 
and hath nobody to plead for him, he hath his senate and his council of state about him, the prophets and the apostles, holy men of God that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He goes on to say this, a man so furnished is never less alone than when alone, for he hath counselors about him that tell him what is to be believed or done. And they are such counselors as cannot err, as will not flatter him, nor applaud him in any sin, nor discourage or dissuade him from that which is good, whatever hazard it may expose to him. And truly, if we be wise, we should choose such counselors as these. Perhaps in a fit of self-pity, you've said, I don't have anyone who understands. No one can really give me clear advice and counsel. No one will stand up for me. No one is going to encourage me. No one really understands what I'm going through. Well, no, the psalmist says, your testimonies are my counselors. We open God's word and we read the inspired words of these prophets and apostles. God himself serves as our counselor in the midst of it. And you notice that all of this is focused on a whole life in which God's word is kept. All of it really comes in the form of a prayer. Verses 17 through 24 are really addressed to God. And the testimonies of God's counselors, that reminds us, are counselors because they are the words of the wonderful counselor, God himself. Of the third verse of that beloved hymn, are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care. Him writer says, do thy friends despise, forsake thee? In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find thy solace there. Living according to the word of God. Having God's testimonies as your delight. Really, the center, the fulcrum of this is in verse 20. This is the attitude that all of us ought to have whatever else we're consumed with, whatever else we're surrounded by. May it be said of us, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Well, let's pray. Lord, you're gracious and good to us, especially in giving us your word. We thank you for this focus on that. We pray that you would cause us to have in us the mind of Christ they would look to him, we would look to him for our sustenance, for our support, for our friendship, for our counsel. And in looking to Christ, of course, we are looking to your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.